Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 368, Move or You Will Be Moved, Part 3. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Tiffany, Diana, and Gary for signing up already. Quote, O happy Earl, in bairns and forebears blessed, siring four guarantors of England's peace. First, Edith, gem link on the kingdom's breast, all virtue's friends, fit daughter for the earl, her sire and also her spouse, the king. By her advice, peace wraps the kingdom round and keeps mankind from breaking pacts of peace. Thus, from your single font, O paradise, you part in secret water for all lands, four ample streams to stir the earth's recess and nourish the estate of men and beasts." Themselves they loudly praise, born from one womb, issue of various kind, unlike in birth, in flesh and voice, place, space, and time and motion. One part mounts the skies to heaven twined, and tends to its race's hope in treetop nest. The other, gulping monster, seeks the depths, attacks its root and mounts the parent trunk, and holds, until as doomed, the breath of life creates a creature from a lifeless dam. And losing grip, pursues again its prey. O happy world, if each would keep its course and water its own lands, with packs observed as the celestial order has ordained. The shining lilies will delight the fields, the caper gild the plain with golden curls, the spring adorn the meads with privet's gleam, the giant oaks with gloomy eyes survey the lands laid out, and kingdoms overcome. When bees in swarms across the honey hills and meadows feed, you, ant, your labor done, secure in your homes, will nothing fear. But if malignant envy break this pact by revolution, oh, what ruin comes. The wretched world again old chaos keeps. High cypresses with roots torn out will plunge. The lofty pines crash down with broken tops. Tall cedar, branches drooping round, will fall with all those riches cherished at its heart. Thus madness on ungrateful lands will help the bounty looted in the hostile towns. End quote. That's a poem about Godwin and his children. And it's found not in the Chronicle, nor in any document dedicated to Godwin, but in the Vita Edwardi, the life of King Edward. Now, Edith is called out by name in this, and apparently it's because she's awesome. But while the poem goes on to talk about several of Godwin's sons, none of them are named. Instead, the listener is left to imagine which boy is ruthless or prone to envy or to debauchery. And listeners of the BHP will know by now that at least a couple of Godwin's sons deserved every single insinuation. But the poem is being clever by not making the accusations directly, because a good diss track never does. Now, if you listen again, you might notice something else in the poem. In it, Godwin is compared to pure spring water, and the symbolism points to his innocence. Medieval listeners would have picked up on this and also would have picked up on the connection between innocence and punishment. Namely, that in Christian mythology, those two things tend to go hand in hand, with the worst punishments often being heaped upon the most innocent. Thus, the poem was indirectly comparing Godwin with Christian martyrs and even Jesus himself. 
And given everything we've spoken about thus far, it might surprise you to discover that the Vita is deep on Team Godwin here. But they are. And actually, the scribes largely blame the chaos and violence of these years, not on Godwin, or even really on his sons, but instead upon Robert of Jumiege, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Reading the Vita, it's clear that the scribes felt Godwin had been done dirty. And fair play, the last few years have been pretty awful. And were it not for their daring escape, and the fact they managed to outwit a manhunt that was led by the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, they probably wouldn't have survived at all. But, despite the fact they'd avoided execution, the fact remains that the king and his friends had looted the House of Godwin. The southwest part of Swain's lands were given to Otta of Deerhurst, who, according to William of Malmesbury, was King Edward's kinsman. Harold's earldom of East Anglia was given to Elfgar, Earl Leofrich of Mercia's son. Robert of Jumiege almost certainly acquired at least a portion of Godwin's lands in Wessex, while the bulk of Godwin's lands likely remained in Edward's possession. Queen Edith's lands, and even her physical possessions, were also taken by Edward, while she was stuffed into a nunnery. And of course, you'll also remember that Bjorn Estrasen's earldom was given to the king's Norman ally, Ralph, after that whole murder thing. The House of Godwin's official power in England was devastated. It was gone. But there was hard power, and then there's soft power. And the Godwins still had plenty of the latter. Moreover, when they fled, they still managed to take a lot of their wealth with them. And even better, they had friends in Europe. Powerful friends. But those friends were also spread throughout the continent. So the Godwins had to come up with a game plan, and quickly. Did they stay together and put all their eggs into one basket? Or do they split up? Now the records give the impression that the Godwins were actually a pretty close family. So splitting up would have been a difficult decision for them. But at the same time, they needed as many friends as possible. And it appears that even though they fled England in one hell of a hurry, they knew exactly where they were headed. And so the House of Godwin set sail and headed out in different directions. Earl Godwin, well, the exile formerly known as Earl Godwin, went to meet with Count Baldwin V of Flanders. And that made obvious sense. He was hostile to King Edward, and he was also tied to the Godwins by marriage through Tostig. He was also really, really powerful. And as the patriarch of the family, Godwin took most of his clan with him to Flanders, including his wife, Githa. But not everyone went to Flanders. Two of his sons, Harold and Leofwina, sailed to Dublin, which was now being ruled by the King of Leinster. And the presence of the King of Leinster ruling over Dublin might have been a surprise to the boys, as they could have reasonably expected the North Gaelic King Echmacach of Dublin to be ruling there. But he had just been driven out by Leinster. And thus, the time of Dublin existing as an independent Norse Gaelic power had come to an end. It was now under the control of the Irish Kingdom of Leinster. But Dublin coming under new management wasn't necessarily a problem for Harold and Leofwina. And that's because they went to Dublin, not because of their king, but for another reason. And so their plan stayed the same. And actually, the House of Godwin had one more planned destination. And this task was given to one particular member of the family. A member that we haven't mentioned yet. 
Pretty much all of the House of Godwin had been accounted for thus far. Queen Edith was imprisoned in a nunnery. Wolfnoth Godwinson and Harold Swainson were held hostage by King Edward. Harold and Leofwina were in Dublin. And most of the rest of the Godwins, including Godwin himself, were staying with Tostig's father-in-law, Count Baldwin V of Flanders. Just about everyone was accounted for. Everyone, except for Swain. Swain wasn't with either group. And that's because by the time the family fled England, Swain had already been kicked out. And where he was headed was actually savvy. Very politically savvy. So savvy, in fact, that I'm certain that this wasn't Swain's idea at all. And he probably fought against it at every opportunity. Because Swain was headed to Jerusalem. Now, why on earth would a man like Swain Godwinson take a trip to the Holy Land? Well, it's almost certainly because for Swain, this wasn't a simple matter of reclaiming lands and titles. You see, Swain, unlike the rest of his family, had been exiled out of England for really good reasons. Like dead noble on your boat kind of reasons. I mean, this guy had launched an illegal war, kidnapped a nun and made her his concubine, broke, let's be honest, a lot of oaths, raised arms against the king, murdered his own cousin, and if you recall, he even once implied his mom was a cheating slut in open court. Do you remember that one? I still can't believe he did that. Swain was reviled in England for perfectly good reasons that literally everyone understood. So while the rest of the family needed a way to reassert their rightful claims, what Swain needed was a rebranding. Something that would improve his social standing. And there was only one place in 1052 that would do that for him. Jerusalem. Swain, the nun-napping kinslayer, was going to become Swain, the pious pilgrim. And this was probably the true stroke of genius in Godwin's overall plan. Because, let's be honest here, this was not Swain's plan. Because when it came down to it, Godwin needed more than just some foreign supporters. That wouldn't hurt, of course, but what he really needed was a huge number of English sympathizers. And that was a tall order, because King Edward had just gone to great lengths to ensure that there were a lot of people who had just gotten rich off the fall of the House of Godwin. People, important people, who now had a vested interest in this family staying out of the country and out of power. And that whole situation had been made worse by the fact that the Godwin brand, which had once stood for loyalty, stability, and justice, had recently become a lot more colorful. By sending Swain on pilgrimage to a site that was so spiritually potent in the medieval mind that he could rightly expect it to light him in a cleansing fire and spit him into the Jordan, the Godwins were signaling that they were turning over a new leaf. Swain was finally being consequenced for his actions, and he was seeking a spiritual renewal. And as luck would have it, it also meant that he was far away from all these events as they unfolded leaving the stable influence of figures like Godwin and Harold to run the show. Like I said, it was a brilliant move. Though, because Swain was Swain, he didn't just hop on a boat or even a horse like a normal person would have. No, he decided he was going to walk to Jerusalem. Barefoot. Because even on pilgrimage, he was still Swain. And Swain was extra. 
And as Swain was carefully walking the road to Jerusalem, occasionally stopping to pick a splinter out of his heel, Godwin was in Bruges, sending messengers to King Edward, begging for permission to appear in court and plead his innocence. He also arranged for surrogates to speak on his behalf, even including influential figures like the King of France and the Holy Roman Emperor. And all of them were asking King Edward for the same thing. Godwin was launching a simultaneous legal defense and PR campaign, essentially seeking to get the supreme law of the land to call off the dogs, while also demonstrating to anyone paying attention that he was still being reasonable, humble, and seeking nothing but reconciliation with his king. But Godwin was also demonstrating that he had very, very powerful friends who were on his side. We can also be sure that at the same time, Godwin's allies in England were working tirelessly to remind people that in addition to having all his lands and titles stolen from him unjustly, the king's French friends had also taken his son and his grandson away from him unjustly, and Queen Edith had been horribly disgraced. Oh, and also there were rulers on the continent like Count Baldwin, the King of France, and even the Holy Roman Emperor who supported Godwin's request for a fair trial. So what Godwin was doing was changing the conversation in England. And stepping back, you really had to hand it to him here. Godwin was great in a crisis. Edward, on the other hand, wasn't. Vindictively exiling the Godwins and robbing them of their lands and titles was a bad look and giving some of those lands and titles to his Norman friends looked even worse. Edward was increasingly looking like he was in the pocket of foreign powers. Powers that didn't share the same interests as the English aristocracy. A thousand years later, and with spotty records, we can't know for certain if he was or wasn't in the pocket of Normandy. The Vita clearly thought he was heavily influenced by the Normans, but as for what truly motivated Edward, we can't know. Perhaps all those debts he owed to foreign nationals didn't influence his decisions at all, and his cozy relationship with Normandy and his hostility to Godwin had nothing to do with that conflict of interests. We really can't know, but it doesn't look good from here, and it certainly didn't look good back in 11th century England, and everything about how Edward was handling this situation only made those fears worse which meant that any sympathies people felt for the Godwins, along with any fears of foreign influence, were now counterbalancing any fears of civil war. Outside of executing Edith, I don't know how Edward could have handled this situation any worse. And then, when King Edward refused Godwin's request for a fair trial, and then told King Henry I and Emperor Henry III that he didn't care what they wanted because Godwin wasn't coming back, well, that left Godwin with only one real option left if he wanted to come home. And the thing is that Godwin must have known that when he proclaimed across Europe that all he wanted was a fair trial and peace, what he was offering was a carrot. But he also had a stick. The crown and its loyalists needed to know exactly what sort of hell they'd invite if they refused Godwin's reasonable demands. In Flanders, wasn't just home to some of the most powerful figures in Western Europe. It wasn't even just home to Tostig's father-in-law. Flanders was also a coastal region with a reputation for, how to put this, a certain moral flexibility. What I'm saying is Baldwin's harbors 
were welcome to sailors and traders of all sorts. Flanders was kind of a pirate's nest. And given how Godwin had plenty of money, but not many soldiers, the path forward here was pretty clear. Either through the wealth that he escaped with, or through a loan from Baldwin, or perhaps just with a promise of a share of the booty, Godwin was going to do some hiring. And incidentally, this is the same reason why Harold and Leofwina probably weren't all that bothered to learn that Dublin had come under new management. They really weren't there for the king. They were there for the Vikings, because Dublin in the 11th century was exactly the kind of place you'd want to go to if you were looking for hardened warriors who were willing to fight for your cause if the price was right. And here is where Godwin's PR campaign shows its true genius. Because while recruiting a bunch of Vikings and other assorted shady characters definitely wasn't a bad plan, it wouldn't be enough to conquer England. King Edward, by this point, would have known the danger that the Godwins posed. So Godwin had to assume that the king was setting up his defenses and preparing for some sort of invasion. As such, all these mercenaries were really good for was getting the family into England and establishing a foothold. At best. And it's possible that the English fleet might even prevent their entry before any of this even began. What Godwin really needed here was enough local support in England that it would deter people like Earls Leofric and Seward from wanting to fight him. Because if those two marshaled their forces in defense of King Edward, he would be in deep trouble. Make no mistake about it, if England decided to fight for King Edward, the Godwins would lose. So what he needed more than anything else was the support of the English. And that's why, as Godwin was quietly hiring large numbers of ships and crews on the River Isere and Newport, he was loudly pleading for peace. Now, as for Harold and Leofwina in Dublin, well, they weren't bothering with any of this peace talk. They were focused purely on hiring the best mercenary fleet they could get. But Dad was playing both sides here. And this meant that to the east and to the west of England, there were now multiple fleets of raiders the Godwins were getting back to their roots. Back to what Godwin's father, Wolfnoth, had done when he found himself in a similar situation. They were going to give England a choice. You could have us as powerful nobles, or you could have us as powerful pirates. And as this was happening, on March 14th of 1052, King Edward's mother, the Dowager Queen Emma of Normandy, died. And this was probably an emotionally complex experience for Edward. His mother was a whole thing. But at the same time, she was his mother. And fascinatingly, King Edward chose not to bury Queen Emma alongside his father, King Athelred, but instead buried her at Winchester alongside her second husband, King Canute, the king who had exiled him and his brother out of England. But... Life and the state goes on, and even as the funeral was held, Edward would have known that the Godwins were out there, and by now, he would have probably heard that they were assembling fleets. So Edward took a countermeasure. He issued a new coin. Now, there are many reasons in the medieval world why you'd want to issue new coins. Sometimes it's to solve the issue of debasement, 
where you have coins that aren't genuine or they've lost value due to people shaving the edges off them or mixing impurities into the coin to stretch their value beyond what the metal was actually worth. Sometimes new coins were used to raise revenue as the minting and reissuing of coins was an excellent way for the powerful, for example, the king, to take a cut of the resources that were being gathered to create those coins and perhaps even take a cut of the coins that were being recalled for replacement. And sometimes you might mint a new coin for a less direct financial reason. For example, you might do it as a PR move. A coin, after all, wasn't just currency. It was also the only tangible interaction that the vast majority of the population would ever have with their king. Unferth won't ever see King Edward, but he might know his name and know his face because he saw it on the coins. And here we have Edward reissuing England's coinage. Right after Edward had made his move against the Godwins and failed, and now was facing off with the reality that they were gathering vast armies of mercenary pirates. And this coin is interesting, because most of the coins during this period are posed in a manner that's reminiscent of Rome. But in this new currency, Edward is seen facing to the right, and he wears a beard, he's holding a scepter, and he's wearing a conical war helmet. In 11th century medieval symbolism, this is a bit like a dude taking a selfie at the gym while doing deadlifts or CrossFit, or doing that thing in the mirror where it looks like they're just crossing their arms, but they're actually stuffing their hands into their armpits so it pushes their biceps up to make them look big. You know that one? Yeah, this coin was like that. So these coins weren't just any coins. They were Edward letting everyone know that he was warlike and manly and totally not French, you guys. Definitely English. Do you see this beard I'm wearing? Je ne suis pas Francais. I am triangle. And this coin is the best evidence that we have that King Edward, like Godwin, was waging a PR war and trying to prevent his father-in-law from gaining local support that he would have needed to make a comeback. But there was only one problem with Edward's plan. While his coins portrayed him as a manly English warrior king, Edward was still Edward. And these nobles knew him, and they knew who he surrounded himself with. King Edward wasn't fooling anybody, least of all the English. And meanwhile, the Godwins were meeting with crews of heavily armed pirates and making their preparations. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also join our Reddit community. It's really active these days. And you can find links to that community and everything else in the community section of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.